In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. over here notes okay ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast for the last few months i've had people bombarding my emails with more david solomon more david solomon i finally got him back he had to go all the way to europe to come back to the true life (laughs) podcast dr david solomon thank you for being here today would you be so kind as to maybe remind people or give a quick bio for those who may not have caught some of our first episodes Absolutely. So it is great to be back. Good to see you again, George. I think the last time we talked, I was in Oxford. That's true. Didn't we do a we did a broadcast from there? We did. Um, which was sometime in May. Um, I am currently the director of research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University, which is in Newport News, Virginia, um, down on the coast near Virginia Beach. Um, originally from the Bronx, New York, and uh, been a professor of medieval literature and religion. For a long time, I've been I've been saying thirty years, and then the other day I had to think about it, and it's been a good deal longer than thirty years. Um, as I was telling, I told a group the other day, I said I like to think I'm aging like a fine wine, but uh, I'm really aging like guacamole. Um, <laughs> but uh, written a bunch of books. Most recent book is on the seven deadly sins, and uh, working on one now that we are finishing on angels and demons and pop culture. Um, which should be out in 2024, I hope. So good to be it's, with you. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. You know, I've, I, I have found this Ariadne thread that has been winding its way through my conversations lately. And it's led me to this new idea that you and I are going to be talking about today, this Codex Chronicles. But before we get into that, I want to get your opinion on sense ratios. And I think it's very pertinent to what we're talking about today, because when we look at medieval manuscripts, when we look at storytelling, or we look at the Gutenberg press, we see the way that human beings have shifted their consumption of media. And I think that that shifts sense ratios. So I'm just curious, what as someone who has studied the medieval mystics in the medieval time doesn't it seem maybe like our sense ratios have changed? Oh, absolutely. And and, I mean, you know, and it's not only directly tied to the the uh the speed with which we live now compared to say 600 years ago um it, there's more to it than that and i think you know you're right to point to the press and the invention of, of the printing press and the widespread availability of books to yeah. people as part of that shift um it's also a a, a tremendous shift between how we quote unquote read because prior to the printing press most folks didn't read couldn't read um and the manuscript culture in which they lived was dictated by the learned either clerics or um the intellectuals telling them about the way things were 
And, you know, one of the great revolutions that came about as a result of the printing press, of course, is the, 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 the Reformation and the shift in, in attitudes about religion and spirituality, which are directly linked to the fact that the printed Bible became more available and people now were able to read the text themselves and not have to rely on it being interpreted by somebody else. Yeah, it's 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 such an incredible subject. You know, when I when I think about the the one of the things that the printing press gave us is this idea of exact repeatability. You know, like that's a that's an interesting thing to think yeah. about. And then if you break it down even further, and you're like, wow, I can really look at each each part of speech as a symbol now, and that leads to like applied linguistics, and you can mm -hmm. really drill down on. It's weird how we look at the words and all of a sudden now our, our society is so individualistic. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a mirror, right? Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I've been, I've been reading, um, going through this, this multi-volume work, which was written quite a few years ago by a guy named uh, Lewis Ginsburg. It's mm. called Legends of the Jews. I got and all it seven basically, copies. Yeah, I mean, it basically retells kind of the history of, of the old testament more or less but but integrating all of the apocryphal stories but the interesting thing is in the section on adam um we're explicitly told that you know god brought adam to the animals and he was able to name them just by looking at them and he knew what they would be called and there's a different level certainly of um language going on there versus being taught that c-a-t means cat yeah. Um, right. And and I think you're right. You know, and linguistics is is far from my area of expertise, that's for sure. But, um, you know, understanding this, the 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 way that language acts as symbols, yeah. um, semiotics and the way things stand for things. And, you know, I mean, I often talk about that with my students when we do philosophy and I I tell them that there's no reason why things are called the way they are. It's very it's completely arbitrary um you know there's nothing particularly cherry about a chair other than the fact <laughs> that we all agree to call it a chair i mean we could decide that we're going to call it a banana and if we all agree on that then it works um you know language is is certainly a social construct um and we use it to communicate with one another whether that's written or spoken and you know one of the differences fundamental differences in the in the manuscript culture of the middle ages is that I mean, these manuscripts were not, and it sounds funny to say this, they weren't written to be read. They're mm. they're they're difficult to read um, for a variety of reasons that we can get into. Yeah. Um, but you know, once once then the printing press comes along and people are starting to learn how to read, it changed language. Um, you know, I mean, most medieval manuscripts um, don't have punctuation. Um, punctuation was not introduced until until later on, until really the age of print. Um, you know, what we know is standardized spelling today for those who have had to suffer through spelling tests. Um, that's a largely an 18th century invention. Um, prior to that, spelling was not standardized. You could spell it pretty much any way you wanted to, as long as it could be sounded out and pronounced properly. Um, it's the reason why Shakespeare spelled his name six different ways, because it didn't matter how you spelled it, as long as when you said it, it still sounded like Shakespeare. Uh, but then in the 18th century, the grammarians come along and, and standardize spelling with the introduction, widespread introduction of dictionaries and folks like Noah Webster mm. and the um, the Port Royals who you know really wanted to standardize everything. And now we're stuck with that. And you know, the bane of every child's existence is spelling tests. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's fascinating to look at it from that from that large scale or for that thousand foot view, because it, it does seem as if we are just narrowing our conscious and in doing so we're narrowing our options. And here we are. Yeah. It, you know, it, 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 it's, it's kind of ironic because print really democratized so much, but it also individualized it. And what's gone on now is that the, the next revolution, which has been this electronic revolution, mm -hmm has really, um, in many ways, although we talk about a global village, it's isolated us more than ever um, from one another. Uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you go back to, to the Middle Ages when 
you were dependent on, let's say, the priest, <clears throat> excuse me, to read you the text and then explain it to you, you had to gather in a church as a group, as a congregation, and do that. Um, you know, once the the press is is invented and people can afford to buy a book and and know how to read, I can take that anywhere I want. I can go to my own room and read it. I don't need you. Um, it's so you know it change it changes the way that we interpret things, changes the way that we understand the world to be sure. Um, you know, I mean, uh, books like Thomas Kuhn's Structures of Scientific Revolutions really mm. is what that's all about. About you know how the press really changed our whole attitude about the universe and the way that we understand the universe with, you know, the, 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 the printing of Copernicus's book mm. and then Galileo comes along. It really changes fundamentally the way that we understand our role and our place in things, which I, I think for some people is uncomfortable. Um, you know, it, 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 it the, there's a, a famous book by E.W. E. Tilliard called the Elizabethan world picture. No, Elizabethan world view, I think it's called. It's a very thin little book, but basically he's arguing that, you know, at that time period, people's understanding of what the world looked like and what their place in it was completely shifted. And I think that we don't appreciate the um, speed with which that happened for those folks. Um, you know, we feel in a fast world and we do, um, you know, you talk to people about technology things that were 20 years ago and you know i mean i talk with students and some of them will say I, I never i don't know what that is you know um but it's it, it, the effect of that is something that i think we really have to be aware of because it had a lot of positives but there are certainly a lot of drawbacks to it um you know i mean you, you noted in the notes that you sent me i mean one of the things that's missing um becomes um the uh direct link to things and when you when you read a text on a screen mm -hmm. um it, it is what i call plain vanilla i mean it looks like any other text and when you hold a book or a manuscript in your wow. hand there is a tactile physical link that you have then it's a bridge to history and um we're we're, we're missing that when we do the online thing yeah, it it remind I think it harkens back to, you know the the words in Timaeus where they Toth is talking to the Creator about technology and writing, and he says something along uh, the, he's told that writing, while a great invention, will probably do the opposite of what he thinks. You know, mm -hmm. writing is a way in which mankind will have the illusion of wisdom, but the right. experience of none of it. And that, that's the same thing with the tactile, yeah. being being a tactile having something tactile is just another way to process information. And when you streamline information and you take away everything except the visual, you're yeah. only getting just this, this one narrow sense of it. And it you are. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is much less of a, a central experience. Yes. Well put. Um, and as a result, I think that the difference in the central experience influences a difference in the intellectual experience. Um, and the way that we process something. I mean, I, I pulled out a couple of things here, just wacky stuff. I mean, yeah. random things. I, I don't have any medieval manuscripts because uh, I'm just a poor college professor and I can't <laughs> afford such things. Um, but I do have some random things that I've collected yeah. for my museum studies classes, which um, over the years, which sometimes I have them used. So this is... Um, a letter um, from 1755. Um, it is in French. Um, and so it would have been delivered like this. Mm -hmm. um, it has a stamp on the back. Um, and then you would open it up and it is actually it open here. It is actually opens up like that. Ah. And, you know, when you look at this, I mean, you know, you can transcribe the French here and type it up on a screen. You are not going to have the same experience of holding this piece of rag paper, mm -hmm. which has such history in it. I mean, this 
piece of paper is, I mean, 1755 is, I, I'm, my math is horrible, but <laughs> what, that's a 270 years, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and here it is, uh, you know, somebody's handwriting, somebody's signature signing the letter um, along with the various, you know, stains on it from over the years. And um, there's just a different experience there. And it's a different way of, of understanding what it is you're looking at. I mean, as you say, it's, it's the, that, that direct link. I mean, in some ways, it becomes almost a direct link to history. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is another short letter. This is 1791. Um, so this would have been folded over like this. Mm. And then it's opened, and it's almost like a postcard size. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can see the person's incredible hand. Yep. Um, they're, 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 they're careful writing. You can see the cross outs. You can see the corrections. You can see the flourishes. And yeah. you don't get that looking at an online text. You just don't. Now, that's not to say that the fact that we have access to online text isn't a wonderful thing. It is um, because we can do so much more now with research, with historical documents, because things are available online and have already been transcribed for us because the transcription of a letter like this um i mean this could take days if not a week the handwriting is pretty tough um and to transcribe the french and then translate the french right. would be a process um i mean i've done things like that when i wrote my first book on the on the glossed medieval bible um i had to look at manuscripts of of the of the text some manuscripts of the bible text from 12th 13th century so this is pre-printing press so everything is in manuscript form and oftentimes what i would do is um i would order copies of texts on microfilm um and so i i pulled out one of the reels here um, <laughs> so you know what i did was i'd have a manuscript that i know i needed to look at um, perhaps I can't travel to that library because I just can't have the funds. Right. I can contact the library and ask them to um, photograph the, the, the manuscript and um, then put it on microfilm and send it to me. So, you know, these are incredibly helpful. You miss the entire sensual experience of being mm. in the manuscript. Um, and it is just unbelievably time consuming to do this kind of work. Um, I remember one summer sitting with one reel that I had gotten and um, for some reason, because the manuscript was in a bad state, they filmed it as a negative. Mm. And so they sent me the microfilm reel and I got it and oh boy, it was tough to read. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the library with the microfilm reader um, looking at the looking at the manuscript day after day uh, and transcribing the text in Latin onto a yellow legal pad, and then I would have to take that and translate that into English. Um, you know, now with with technology of and, and things that are available, a lot of that work's been done for us, which is fantastic. Um, but you know, once again, you you miss out on some of that. Um, you know, you miss out on on perhaps visiting an incredible library. Um, you know, I mean, I can easily request a copy of a manuscript on microfilm from the British Library in London. It won't cost anywhere from fifty to hundred dollars. Hmm. I'll probably have it in a couple of weeks. Um, but the experience of flying to London, the experience of going to the British Library. The experience of having them pull the manuscript that I need and bring it out in the special collections room, handling it with white gloves, only using a pencil because they don't allow pens in there. And, you know, that experience I, will have been lost. And along with that is something something else is, which is lost, which I'm very big on, especially when it comes to libraries, is serendipity. Hmm. You don't know what else you're going to find along the way. Yeah. And that's not going to happen sitting in your PJs in your dorm room. Um, it's just not going to happen. Uh, you got to get out there and experience it because there are a lot of things that that 
will pop up that you'll discover that you never knew before. You know, when, when I was in graduate school, we had um, a famous Shakespeare scholar come to campus and he had discovered supposedly an unknown lost poem by Shakespeare. Um, how did he discover it? Well, he was in, I believe it was the Beinecke at Yale, the rare book library, doing some research. And because of the way that things oftentimes were bound in the Middle Ages and still into the early Renaissance, a lot of things are just thrown in together into the same binding. And so he had had a, a volume pulled that he needed to look at because there was something in it that he needed to look at. And he's thumbing through it and he found this poem in the back that he thought, that sounds like Shakespeare. And um, it ended up being front page news in the New York Times, um, this undiscovered poem by Shakespeare. And, and over the years now, there's been, as there is in the Shakespeare industry, a lot of debate about, is it really Shakespeare? Yeah. Who is, you know, but that's beside the point. But I mean, that was, that was serendipitous. Yeah. He wasn't looking for that. He just happened to find it. Um, you know, and I, I love those kinds of experiences. Um, you know, I, it, we're, we're talking more about manuscripts, but when it comes to books, um, so when I when I was in graduate school, my my doctoral dissertation was on English mysticism, and um, so I studied uh, Richard Roll quite a bit, and um, I had wanted at the time there wasn't very much that was available that was in print that you could buy. Um, most of the books that were available were really old and no longer available. You had to hunt them down and use bookstores, and um, there was a two volume um, sort of standard collection of the work of of Richard Roll at that point. And um, it had been put together, I think, in the 1920s, I believe. And I, the, it, for me, that was like the holy grail. I was looking for those volumes. <laughs> yeah. And um, lo and behold, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I mean, it's funny that I can still remember all of this. <laughs> Stop me if I'm boring you. Um, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in a used bookstore up there called McIntyre and Moore, which is no longer in existence, which was a fantastic <laughs> bookstore for used books for academics. And I always went in there. And most of the stuff was usually out of my price range as a graduate student, but occasionally you'd find something and, and pick it up. Well, there on the shelf was volume one of the two volumes of Richard Roll's work. I'd never seen it outside of a library before. And so I pulled the volume off the shelf. I actually have it sitting on the shelf over here. And um, I think it may have cost me $60, which was, you know, not cheap. Right. But the interesting thing about it is it is the copy that had been owned by a woman named Geraldine Hodgson. She signed her, signed the inside of it. Geraldine Hodgson was an educator and a scholar of English mystics who wrote a book on Richard Roll in the 1910s and 1920s. I have her copy of Richard <laughs> Roll. And I think that's just the coolest thing in the world. Because there's a history to that that, I mean, I have, is beyond my imagination, you know, to think about her using that book yeah. to work on her own work. It's... It's fascinating to think in some ways I love the idea of the, the serendipity. It's like, I would see that as a way of her making sure it got to someone like her who could continue the process of it. You know what I mean? And yeah. That is, it's so beautiful to think about. And well, it's, it, it's a bridge. It's, it's, as yeah, you agreed. say, it's a direct link. Yes. Right. Yes. So I have a direct link yeah. to Geraldine Hodgson sitting in my office here yeah. in Newport news, Virginia. I mean, this woman who worked and lived in Yorkshire, England, I mean, how how just freaky is that? It's just incredible. Yeah, I I, I don't believe in the, those are can be con, can be coincidences. I think that, like you said, there's a bridge there, and there's some force not only bigger than we imagine, but bigger than we can imagine, making sure things fall into the proper hands. You know, at least as much as it can. Like, okay, you know, life conspires to make the best possible version of yourself happen. Yeah. I believe that sometimes wholeheartedly, and you know when I. When I think about the term sensual that you used mm. in, in, in that, doesn't it seem that if, if tactility equals sensualness 
and we're no longer having that. Maybe that's why it seems there's such less, such less passion in the world, right? There's a form well, of passion yeah. that comes with that. Oh, to be sure. I mean, we are we are more disconnected from our yes. physical bodies yep. than than probably in ever in history, I imagine. Yeah. Um, and it, it it it's you know it, it and it's just pushed forward and promulgated by by you know our deep dive into virtual reality yeah and all of this stuff on ai um it really is just moving us further and further away from the physical self i mean the whole idea of the singularity is right is that you can download your consciousness yeah um, you don't need the physical body and so yeah i think you're right i mean there is a a, a more and more of a a separation of the um the intellectual from the physical for lack of another way of putting it i mean and it's interesting because the the medieval mystics really that's what they were looking for um you know their goal was to separate the spiritual from the physical to mm -hmm. live a spiritual existence almost exclusively and and somehow squash down the physical because they saw the physical as being um an evil as being a negative and to live that spiritual experience slash what we now would call intellectual. And I think that for so many people, myself included, um, you know, the bad thing that we do is we do live largely an intellectual existence and move away from the physical and it's, a, it damages the physical body. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in horrible, shape and i hate exercising and don't like doing any of that stuff and you know and now with the the world seeming to turn on us you can't go outside and so it's uh you know it, it it's an interesting shift that we're seeing um and to see where that's going to go in coming years i i don't know um i mean increasingly we have students who you know after sitting in their rooms for two years during COVID um, got used to that. And they're not really engaging with the world other than the only way they know how to do it, which is through a screen. Um, whether that's a, a Zoom meeting or texting or FaceTiming or whatever the heck it is that they're using, um, it seems like that's the only way that they can um relate to the world uh you know I, I was i was i was watching a youtube video last night of a performance it was a concert performance i'm trying to remember who what was i watching um it was a concert performance oh it was a concert performance by um uh maggie rogers who i i happen to like and um it was interesting because during the performance at one point she brought out a guest and as soon as the guest came on, so so someone was filming this from their the audience on a phone, I'm sure. Sure. But it was interesting because as soon as the guest came out, all you see see in front of them is hands go up with phones. <laughs> you know, and when we relate to the world only through a device, I, what does that mean? Uh, you know, one of the first things that I told my students when we hit the ground in London is. You know, don't just focus on taking pictures in all these places that we're going. Have the experience of physically being there. Mm. And for a lot of these kids and a lot of this generation, they don't really know how to do that. Um, and again, you know, part of it is 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 the hiccup of COVID. But part of it is also because they've been raised with this. They don't know any other way. And... Um, we 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 just got two new kittens, right? So our, nice. our our elderly cat of twenty years passed away last month, and so we got two new kittens. They're a bonded pair of kittens. They're not related, but they're best pals. They're completely insane. Yes, one of them is completely enthralled with the television. She thinks what's on the TV is real. So. Yesterday morning, I had the Today Show on, and she's trying to attack out Roker on the screen. <laughs> um, he's walking all over the place, and she's running around, and she's up on her hind legs. And it, it's interesting to watch because I think in many ways that's the way that increasingly human beings react as well. There's, there's a, a, you know, is it real? Is it not real? I mean, you know, George, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the the ads when we were kids for 
for uh, Memorex, right? Is it real or is it Memorex? Yeah. Right for the, for the audio tapes. Yeah. And they used to have a, an opera singer would sing a really high note and break a glass. And then they would play the recording of the high note breaking the glass and it would break another glass. And so the whole mm -hmm. thing was real or is it Memorex, right? You couldn't yeah. tell. And I think, you know, for a lot of people increasingly today, what's real? Um, I, I, we're, we're, we almost seem at a point where we're redefining the, the meaning of it. Uh, I, I don't know what it's going to be, um, but, you know, what is real? That, that that harkens back to some of the work you did in your in your book, the seven deadly sins. Where I think there's a thread that runs through the Bible, where there's there's a there's a thread through there that says like the devil is constantly trying to remake the world in his image. It's an artificial image, and if you just run that forward now, is it Memorex or is it real? Yeah. It's the illusion. It's the Maya. Yeah. You know, it's it's, and we can even take it. You you would spoke about the kids today, who. At, at the front of the concert, they hold up a phone and then they see the world, the stage through that phone. It's yeah. pretty similar to the, how the book was. Like now people had a printing press. Now they had a book. Now you could see the world through the book. But now you just see it through a screen. It's it's so fractal in nature. If you take it even back yeah. to the past, but, right? But I think the difference okay. is, is the way in which we have engaged our imagination. How so? So the the, the printing press and the, and having a physical book in your hand caused you to enter a world right. in your mind right. that yeah. was almost supernatural yes whereas the looking at something on your phone is just it's a, it's a it's not the same kind of experience you're not engaging the same type of imagination and the same type of skills um you know i mean the kids used to say and and they show, shows you how old i'm getting i mean they used to say picks or it didn't happen Right. I remember when kids used to say that they probably don't say that anymore. Picture <laughs> it didn't happen, right? You got to take a picture of it. It didn't happen mm -hmm. because that was the only. And so they're obsessed with taking photos of things. I mean, you know, I cannot imagine how many selfies were taken on the trip I just did to London by these students. I mean, it was just every time I turned around, they, they were snapping selfies, and they don't snap one. They take like four, five, six, because they're trying to get the best one, whatever that means. Um, you know, it, it's just they are, you know, we, we complain about it, but they are in some ways, it's true, they are living through their phones. And the problem with it is that we can't, I, 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 was, I was in New York two weeks ago doing some consulting with a great, great group of high school teachers in Scarsdale, New York. At the high school this year, they are intent on having no phones in the classroom. They have bought these, they sell them to educators. They, they bought these lock boxes and the kids will lock their phones in them at the beginning of the day and they get them back at the end of the day. Now, the parents must go, be going ballistic, but that's beside the point. The kids are going to go through a withdrawal. That's beside the point, too. But the thing, you know, when I was talking to the teachers, I said, but the phones aren't going away. You know, you can't just do that. I mean, that's not a solution. Right. I mean, you know, abstinence, teaching abstinence wasn't a solution for sex education. Yeah. That didn't work either. Um, you got to figure out how to use these things as tools. And I think one of the things that happened when the printing press came along in response to what Socrates was worried about in that mm. ancient text is the people who really understood said, okay, this is a new tool. How do yeah. we use it? Right. It's not going away. How do we use it? Um, and the folks who did that were the ones who were able to move forward. Yeah. The folks who were in denial. I mean, you know, where is that going to get you? Um, you know, so you, you think about things today. Right. I mean, so and, and we were also I was also talking with the same group of teachers about their fears about AI and things like chat GPT. Yeah. And we're talking about ways in integrating them into the curriculum right. so that they are tools that students can use the same way that in the late seventies, early eighties calculators were the same way. Right. And there was an entire movement of math teachers who I, I, I have a picture of it from a, from a newspaper article picketed outside of school that calculators <laughs> should be banned. They shouldn't yeah. be allowed to be used. But you know, the problem with technology is once it's here, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. 
You just can't. And so the better approach is to figure out, all right, so how do we make the best use of this? And and this is where, you know, and you and I have talked about it before. I mean, it, it, I keep coming back to it because I think it's such a seminal essay, that piece by Vannevar Bush called, As We May Think, from 1945, mm. where he basically predicts the internet. He says, won't this be wonderful? We'll be able to basically have our memory stored on a machine and the point of it was it will free us up to do the kind of higher level thinking that human beings have the potential to do. The problem is we ain't doing that, <laughs> right? We've got the tool. We're not necessarily using it in the best way that we could. And that's the, that's the key here. That's the trick, right? Yeah. It's figuring that out. And that takes longer than the invention of the thing. Mm-hmm. Because that takes some thought. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't think as quickly as a computer. Um, you know, it takes some thought and some reflection and some discussion. Um, you know, it, it takes collaborative discussions like you and I are having to figure out, well, you know, how can we use this stuff to our best benefit? Um, you know, we, I mean, think about what we're doing right here with the, the yeah. video call, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, when that first started showing up, I mean, I mean, the first place any of us probably saw it was in 2001, A Space Odyssey, hmm. when he calls home on a on a video payphone and talks to his daughter. And people thought, oh, that's never going to happen. And then, of course, there were those video phones in the 1970s, but they 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 died a terrible death because they just didn't work the way that they needed to. And they were too expensive. And then with the development of video conferencing over the internet, which, I mean, we've had back as long as we had modems. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just clunky. And only certain people could use it, partially because cameras were too expensive. The technology was just too expensive. <laughs> well, as the technology becomes cheaper and more available, again, think about the printing press, more people can use it. And you think about, okay, how can we use it as a good tool, right? And so, you know, George, you found a way through the True Life podcast to use this as a good tool. Uh, well, I, you know, I also found using it for weird things, but <laughs> well, I think I've also found some really good teachers. Yourself, one of them, that is an incredible resource in understanding. See, here's here's what I think. The more that I talk to you, and the more we have these conversations about how the medieval mystics interpreted the world the better vision I have of what's about to happen. And I, I think that this medium has given me a very unique perspective on the changing world. And what I mean by that, and one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the mystics and manuscripts is because when you go back and you look at the way that they interpreted the world, at least in my opinion, like I see that we're on the forefront of consuming the world that way again like mm. and here's a, here's an exercise in imagination that what would a digital manuscript look like would it be a mosaic of people online experiencing the world in a spiritual way i think so and it's so difficult right now to predict the future but i think what we're seeing is a return to the mystic tradition because we are in some ways like you would just mentioned that the, the mystics, they, they wanted to experience a higher spiritual nature. In mm -hmm. some ways, like I see that returning, but it's it's that helical rhyming that we talked about in a previous podcast. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I see it. Like I, I, the people that I talk to are, especially in the world of, um, I, I do a lot of talking to people with PTSD who are using psychedelics in order mm. to get over their trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we've gone through in the last, since the, since the, since the um, printing press or the 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 revolution that is the uh, what is that what is that term for revolution again the 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 not the um it's a type of revolution that we went through with like production and oh the industrial revolution thank you so much yep. I, I love that you can do that <laughs> the <laughs> ever since the industrial resolution re revolution it's it's sort of like we have have a societal PTSD. Like we've yeah, been I mean, stripped of so much. The, the difference is that okay. the medieval mystics experience was very individual. Okay. And the medieval experience, mystics experience 
of writing down their experience was really they served more as an amanuensis for for something that they were mm. getting from the divine okay right they were amanuensis fancy word for a secretary right they were writing down the vision that they received today what i envision that digital manuscript that you're okay. talking about is something almost like a google doc where we collaborate together right and i mean when i have done that with people usually working on something you know that we're trying to wordsmith right it's just it's amazing the way that that works it really is i mean we're all on it at the same time you can see what everybody's doing at once we're changing words around and that so i i think one of the differences is we've moved from a very individual experience mm. to a much more collaborative experience yeah and you know i don't know what that means for um the individual spiritual experience which i still um highly value and think is yeah. incredibly important and i think we have largely uh lost um i think there's there has to be a place for both the problem is that we live in such a cluttered world in, in every sense that it's difficult for people to find the space to do those two different things because they are two different activities in other words experiencing the spiritual as an individual usually requires being alone being quiet being slow mm. those are three things that are mm. not being really loved by our contemporary world right we don't like things that are quiet we like noise we don't like being alone we like collaboration and being in groups and what was the other one that i said I remember being slow and oh yes being slow we live in a in a, a fast high-speed world think about the way that we can collaborate on a google doc well mm -hmm. it's the complete opposite isn't it it's not alone it's fast and what was my third one <laughs> remember <laughs> it was being alone fast and collect no being alone quiet quiet, quiet. Yep. Um, you know, it's often not quiet because oftentimes when we're working on a Google Doc, we're on a Zoom call at the same time, speak mm. talking it out. So it, it almost is like polar opposite. And the thing is, how do you find space in your day, literally, to engage in both of those kinds of activities, which are so different? And you can't just flip the light switch on and off, right? You can't go from, you know, 60 to zero in in the flash of a moment and you know we like to think we can but the brain can't do that and so you know what i try to teach my students is they really have to find space for both of those kinds of activities because they both have value and importance and they shouldn't discount one for the other they're both important and so, you know, when I tell them about the experience of the medieval mystics, mm -hmm. and I tell them about folks who try to lead that kind of a life today still, and I'm talking about a cloistered life, I mean, the, the extreme, right? They, they, they look at me like I'm, like I'm crazy. Are, are you kidding? And they're intrigued by it, though. They're absolutely intrigued sure. by it. Absolutely intrigued by it. I mean, when I tell them about, you know, nuns who would, who would, you know, become cloistered in the Middle Ages and the process that they went through in order to do, I mean, they're intrigued by it. Yeah. Because I think it's so foreign to the way that we live now. We don't live that way. We don't, we don't take that time for reflection and contemplation that they were doing. We don't do it. Um, so, you know, I, I, as I say, I mean, I think Part of the, the thing is, and it's just like talking about the tools that you need to learn how to use and use them well, both of these approaches, you know, the solitary, quiet, slow, and the collaborative, fast, noisy, this has to be space for both of those in our lives. The trick is, is finding some kind of balance, right? Finding, yeah. finding what the mystics would call the middle way, right? Yeah, so this brings up an interesting as you're speaking, I'm I'm trying to imagine the relationship between the manuscript, the mystic and the manuscript, 
and and ritual and ceremony because it yeah. seems to me there's lots of manuscripts that describe a ceremony at some point in time they would have this manuscript and then they may have like a ceremony later you know we we almost have no ceremonies now i mean we have echoes of them but what, what is yeah. the relationship there you think but i mean you know traditional religion still reveres the printed word i mean look at the beginning of of, of a catholic mass yeah i mean they carry the bible in holding it up in the air um it's revered um you know i mean it, the, the the entire tradition of you know the, the three religions of the people of the book i mean all still do that to some degree i think and um, even if you go to Eastern religion, I mean, and look at, at Buddhist texts, I mean, you go into a Buddhist library and the texts are just, you know, lined up on the on the shelves. They're just the written word still mm. has value. Um, but, you know, I, I, there, there certainly has to be some some distancing. You know, I mean, as I mentioned, Richard Roll. So Richard Roll, one of my favorite mystics, his his thin sort of autobiographical book is called The Fire of Love, Incendium Amoris. So it's, mm. a, it's a beautifully written, short little treatise on his experience as a mystic, but also written as a guide for the reader to possibly lead that kind of life. So he wrote the book in Latin, and then it was translated into Middle English. Um, and we have versions of both of those texts that have come down. Um, because it went out of print and I teach that book several years ago, I did my own sloppy translation so that I had it so that I could still use it. And I think about how removed it is from the original, you know, I mean, it, it again, you know, we said, is it live or is it Memorex, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> when you tape something, it's a generation down, right? I mean, that's the whole analog thing, right? When you make copies of things, it loses a generation. Yeah, you know, so you make a copy of a, of a, you know, for those who are old enough to remember them, of a videotape, you know, it's it's not as good as the original, yeah. and then you make a copy of that, it gets worse and worse and worse. Well, of course, the 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 unique thing about digital is that doesn't happen. Everything is, as you said, it's it's exact repeatability. Yeah, it's the same thing. There's nothing that's lost. But by the same time, at the same time. When I think about that translation I did of Roll's text, and I think about the connections it has to previous versions of it, going back to the 14th century to when he actually used a pen and wrote it down, there's something to that that's kind of itself is kind of mystical to me that's lacking from the digital. I don't see it there. And, um, that's just that's that's one of the things that I, I think we need to work on. Right. As as we as I say, I mean, it's not going away. The digital's here. This is what's happening. I mean, our libraries are shrinking because more and more is available online. So print books are, are starting to disappear. Um, although I, I don't I think that that is probably an overstatement. I don't think it's ever going to happen to the degree that some people think it will. Um so how do we use this digital stuff to its best um, its best capability, its best potential um, to help us to become better human beings? Because I think that's the goal, right? I mean, that's the goal of everything. That's the goal of everything that you and I have ever talked about. I think that's the goal of the True Life Podcast is how do we become better human beings? Um, and whether that is through... Chat GPT? I don't know. Maybe. Um, you know, um, all of these things are so new because, you know, I, I think it was Isaac Asimov who said something to the effect that, you know, <laughs> science can make things happen so quickly and, you know, it takes society a long time to catch up. Um, and I, it, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Um, I mean, you know, the, the it's interesting. I picked up a book when I was in London on artificial intelligence because mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I really need to like wrap my mind around this because this is obviously not going away. <laughs> um, so I read the book and the book was interesting, well written, 
but it was written in 2012. So it mentions nothing about what's going on currently, which has all exploded in the last nine months with AI and ChatGPT and all these chatbots uh, becoming more available. It doesn't talk about that at all. And the book isn't even 10 years old. Right. It's just it's happening so fast. And, uh, you know, I was it. Um, who was it that came out and said, we actually need to slow down the A.I.? I think a, a bunch of people. Elon Musk came out. Was it um, Musk? And there was a, there was a team of yeah. people at high ranking places that, uh, that all said I know the same Douglas thing. Hofstetter said different things about this. Um, and he he wrote an op ed in The Times not that long ago about this, where he. He had his view about it also. I think it because at one point, I think he had said, we need to to hold up. We need to pull back on the reins here. And I think he's changed his attitude about that now. Mm. Um, you know, and, and those are the folks that I'm that I'm that I want to hear from. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Douglas Hofstetter, right? Go to yeah. Bach, you know. Right. Um, you know, I, those are the I want to hear what they have to say about this because they've been thinking about it for decades before any of us ever thought about it. Quite honestly, you know, sorry, I don't give a rat's ass what Elon Musk says because he's worried <laughs> about making money. Yeah. You know, so, you yeah. know, I don't trust what he says. But Douglas Hofstetter, I trust what he says. Yeah, I, I think sometimes that if you can, if if someone's motives are clear, then you can listen to them and then just hear the opposite side of it. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's interesting. When I think about this idea of... um the the digital feudalism that can be exact repeatability on some level like the answer to that i think is that the centralized model of like okay this is the this is the gospel like the answer to that is the fragmentation we're seeing because that's all you can do if they're gonna if if the if the if there's exact repeatability and everybody must have this i think there was a quote from Eric Schmidt that said, I want Google to return one answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, well, okay. it's, it, it's what one scholar called the tyranny of choice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. You know, she wrote a great book called the tyranny of choice. I, I her name escapes me, but you know, and she's talking about the fact that we, we have too much choice. Right. You know, and I, I think there's something to that. I mean, you, know, you go to the grocery store and you got, you know, 500 different kinds of cereals. Um, I just want, you know, just tell me which one to pick. I don't need 50 different kinds of ketchups, <laughs> right? And by the same token, you know, when I do a Google search, I don't need 3,000 results. Um, but, and, but and I think that the thing that... in the face of creativity? Like, to, to have your choices pared down so small and have that one search yeah. return, Don't well, isn't that how productivity yes. happens? Yeah, well, and that's why people are so enthralled with something like ChatGBT, because it gives you one answer, <laughs> right? It gives me one answer. And um, I do think that that, I mean, and that is the thing that a lot of educators are really worried about is what is that going to do to creativity? Yeah. Right. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but it, and what does that mean about serendipity? I mean, a lot of the stuff that I find is oftentimes when I do a Google search is by accident mm -hmm. because it's the, you know, I click on a link and it's like, oh, that's not really what I wanted. But, gee, that's really interesting. Um, you know, and I wouldn't have known about that otherwise. Um, it's it's the same reason why I, I I force my students to go and, and you know, walk around in the shelves in the library. I want them to yeah. look at the books. Right. You don't know what you're going to find. Do you think it's possible, though? Like, I think that serendipity is part of the human condition. And no matter how much people at the top try to stamp out that light, like it's everywhere. It's in every cell of us. And and maybe you can find it in the way in which we interpret the words that ChatGPT gives back to us. Like I, you know, yeah. it is about the prompts a lot. And you can find, sure. you could ask for 10 different, give me 10 different corresponding but correlated things about this topic and it'll yeah. flow them all to you. Yeah. No, it, 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 I mean, I think to some degree, I think you're, you're right. I think, Rather than serendipity being part okay. of the human condition, if you will, I think it curiosity is what yes, we're about. Yes, right? I love it. Yeah. And um, curiosity is just so vital. I mean, I work yeah. with you know students who are doing research and creative activity, and we talk about the importance of curiosity, intellectual curiosity yep. all the time. And then I also do talk about serendipity. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, both of those are very important. I think that 
the danger is that technology um it, it, it it's in danger of squelching a lot of curiosity mm. and serendipity by giving you one answer right and thinking Agreed. that that's the only answer right i mean it, it it's the same problem that we had decades ago when students would go and get a book off the library shelf and say well this is what the book said so that must be right mm. no that's one interpretation of it that's yeah. not the only one and they need to learn how to, that that's the that that's the case um you know it, it yeah. and that's something that students learn and that we learn as human beings right is that there's not just one answer um i used to team teach a a course with a colleague of mine in mathematics called the literature of mathematics and the mathematics of mm -hmm. literature it was a great honors course that yeah. we did together and half the kids in the class were math students and half the kids in the class were english students and they were taking it for math or english credit well the english students used to go bananas because with the math problems there was one right answer and the english students were all <laughs> about coming up with interpretations and the math students hated that you could interpret a poem 10 different ways and that there wasn't one right answer you know it was just fundamentally <laughs> two different approaches to things and you know i think one of the dangers for the technology is that that it provides people with the illusion that there's one right answer yeah and it's an illusion right it's, it is. that isn't truth but we need that's where the education comes in as educators we teach them how to use the damn tool right so chat gbt may be fantastic i don't know right the jury's out i mean it's so damn new right uh, you know who knows we haven't had time to really think about it maybe the greatest thing in the world but what you have to learn is how do you use that as a right. tool Right. right. How did you learn how to use a calculator as a tool to learn math and still learn math? Yeah. Right? The calculator can't do everything for you. Um, and so you have to learn how to use these things. And I think that's that's a big part of it. I mean, it's it goes back to what I was saying with my my friends, those high school teachers who just want students to lock up their phones. It's yeah. Like, what, what kind of solution is that? The phones aren't going away. Um, you know, how might you use them as tools in your teaching? Because as so many people have said, you know, we still are largely teaching kids the way that we were in the 18th century. Uh, it hasn't changed a whole lot. And that's kind of crazy. I mean, when you look at, at classrooms, they yeah. don't look a hell of a lot different than they looked in early America. Rows of yeah. desks with a teacher standing in the front in front of a board. Yeah. You know, and so some of it is, is sort of just fundamentally thinking about how we have to adjust our world and 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 again you know so that we can become the best human beings that that we can um you know and really look at our potential um it's it, it but it, it's it's something which is going to take time um it is not something that is going to happen overnight um i often tell people you know it's a culture change and you know culture change is hard and it takes a while. Um, some people are going to be unhappy. I mean, if you go back and look at, at the way that culture changed after the Copernican Revolution, you know, there were a lot of people who were really unhappy with accepting the idea that the Earth was not at the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though it was pretty clear that that was the case, they were not able to accept it. And those folks end up le being left behind in many ways and you know it, it when i was in graduate school and and pcs became a big thing they first started to really hit i remember i got to, to graduate school and i had my electronic typewriter you remember those <laughs> yeah um, I do. and i thought oh i'll be able to use that you know no problem and i got my first i had to write an essay on uh on william blake's poetry and it was due in two weeks so I sat down at my typewriter in my in my apartment and did what I had always done as an undergraduate. I typed out my draft and then I would go and edit it and I would retype the draft. And I realized, oh, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do this because it's due in two weeks. The world's <laughs> moving faster. And so I went out and bought my first computer, my first PC. I had no idea how to use it. Not a clue. Windows hadn't been invented yet um, i remember i had to send away for the word perfect discs they came in the mail 
um, the five and a quarter inch floppy disk. <laughs> and I remember popping it in and turning the computer on and it's like, all right, I guess this is the future. I got to figure out how to do this. And so yeah. over the next couple of years while I was in graduate school, I taught myself about how to use computers and how to use them effectively in the classroom to the point where I was doing workshops for teachers in Connecticut on introducing the computer and the internet into their classroom. Um, so, you know, I, I could have stuck my head in the sand and said, la, 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 I'm not listening. This is going to go away. I'm just going to use my typewriter. But right. that would have been pretty stupid. Yeah. And I think if we are going to act today as if this technology is going away and, you know, we don't have to pay attention to it, I don't know what we're thinking. Yeah, the, the strategy of the ostrich is not usually a good one. No, no it's not. It's attractive, you know, for some people because that's comforting, sure, right? Sure. You know, it's comforting. But again, we're talking about finding, you know, I suppose, you know, you can find space in your day to stick your head in the sand. But at some point, you got to take your head out of sand. Yeah. Right. Because that's not the world that you're living in. But, you know, maybe again, it's finding the middle way. Yeah. You know, I think one thing it poses that's it's, it's this double edged sword. Because I think when we look at AI specifically, what we're seeing is us the same way they do that intelligence for a dolphin to look in the mirror or primate to look in the mirror. And they're like, Hey, that's us. So too, are we recognizing AI? I'm like, it's hard. Cause you look at it and you're like, Oh, this thing is horrible. Cause it's us. Like that yeah. is us. Oh, look at all, read all that crazy. That's all us, yeah. but it's beautiful too. Cause it's like, man, that's all us. Look at that. We did that, you know? And if we can harness that and we can begin to be comfortable with the reflection in the mirror, Hey, we can make some real changes because, like, that mirror is showing us some pretty big problems. Oh, yeah. We don't recognize yeah. it. Like, think about so many theories that now that we do have true communicate, maybe not true, but now that we can really scrape the internet and get a good look at not only my history, but Japanese history or someone else's history, and we can look at it together and be like, hmm, turns out we're not that. We're, mm. we're all of this. You know, I, that's that's damaging to a lot of people that hold really prominent positions that have yeah. theories that come straight down. And yeah. of course, they're going to have their head in their sand. And everybody who studied under them is going to have their head somewhat in the sand because they've built a career on yeah. that. It's going away. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's I mean, part of something else that we've talked about before, and I know that you're interested in is, you know, thinking about the Jungian self, right? <laughs> and the shadow self, right? Having to yes. deal with that and having to reconcile oneself with that. So yeah. you look in the mirror, you realize that, you know, it ain't all good. Um, <laughs> but you can't you can't just repress it, which is what Freud laugh. wants you to yeah. do. You yeah. got to deal with it. Yep. You know, you, you got to be Luke Skywalker going into the cave in The Empire Strikes Back, confronting his shadow right. self and realizing that Darth Vader, when he kills him in that fantasy, is himself. Yep. Right. That, that 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 really what he's battling is demons that are within him. Yep. And we've all got them. Yep. And I think that what, you know, happens today is, as opposed to the Middle Ages, when people spent so much more time quietly and alone and living with those demons, we find ways to, to either bury them or run away from them. Yep. And we've got plenty of ways to do that, right? I yeah. mean, just uh, turn on the latest Netflix thing and binge watch that and you <laughs> can escape. Yeah. Yeah, the fragmentation allows you to, you can, you can hide out in your own. Yeah, it, I'm not sure which way I want to take it, but yeah, it's it's fascinating to me to see this happening. And I think that the way you know, my grandpa used to say, if you want a new idea, read a really old book. And I really mm. think that we're like we're that. finding our ways back into reality. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. No. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So, well. Dr. Solomon, this has been so much fun, man. I really am excited to get back and, and talk to you and, and, and start this whole Codex Chronicles and learn yeah. so much more. It's really fun. And I, I enjoy the stories and I enjoy talking to you. And I know you got the school year coming up. Before I let you go, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Yeah. So uh, my website is David A. Solomon and it's S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. 
and you can find links to my books and consulting and uh, a lot of the other appearances, including my my work with George here. And um, what am I excited? About? What's coming up? And what am I excited about? Yeah. Um, well, we're we're gearing up for the beginning of the new academic year. Yeah. Um, a lot of new changes around my institution. We have a new president who just started, so we're excited about that. And um, what I'm looking forward to is I am going to be teaching my Bible as literature course, nice. honors course this fall, which I haven't taught in a couple of years. And I'm very excited about getting back into that. It's uh, it's such a, a fun class to teach and and the uh, interesting discussions. Yeah, I, I would I would point everybody to the books that you've written. And, you know, if, if I can just touch quickly on something that you had said earlier about the way in which schools haven't changed. I think you are an incredible example of how education can be done in a way through lived experience. And I talked to you in Oxford and I could see the level of education that was happening and the excitement in you and the students when they're going around. And I think that's how education should be done. In some yeah. ways you're, you're, you are helping people, you know, navigate the world of lived experience. And I think that's, I wish that was something that more people could do. And I guess that speaks volumes of why you're the creative director where you are. It's a great <laughs> way to do it. And I love the I idea of literature that. and math and math and literature. Yeah. I, I, it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad people are like you were out there doing it. So I appreciate that. Yep. I know you're, I know you got some time, but so thank you so much hey, for everything to today. Ladies and gentlemen, check out the books, check them out. Thank you for spending time with us today. That's all we got. Aloha. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.